Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, feelers, and welcome to episode 123 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to dive deep into the weird world of anime, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. Week three of Director Battle Month is upon us, and in a surprise pick, at least to us, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away made it through. Like every other bracket, there were a lot of great contenders, but it looks like this will be the second week in a row we will be covering a Japanese foreign film. Fortunately, subtitles are optional for this one. Aaron, before we traverse this magical world that Miyazaki has created, why don't you catch us up on what you've been up to? Well, I would love to, Patrick. Uh, There are a couple of films that have opened this past weekend, I have to mention, but unlike last week where I had a strong connection to all three, these two are kind of in the meh department, and I could really just say take them or leave them. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here. One of them is called Puzzle, and this is an R-rated drama about competitive puzzling. Yes, that is a thing. I'm not kidding. But for real, it tells the story of a woman named Agnes in a really, really wonderfully played role uh, by Kelly McDonald, the actress is named. Uh, And she is just in a really dead-end situation at home. Things are just not going the way that she wants them to go with her family. It's kind of just having a midlife crisis, really. And she discovers uh, that her ability to put together puzzles with great uh, precision is actually something that can be used out in the world in this competitive puzzling world. And so she meets Irfan Khan and I really loved him in this film. His performance is fantastic. He's really an underrated actor. I didn't realize I'd seen him in so much until I looked him up, but it goes on and it, it's really long in my opinion for what the story is trying to deal with and what it's trying to tell. And it, it's got a lack of a firm resolution at the end, uh, you know, it, it's statement about marriage and about how relationships should go and that the way that, that things play out just kind of rub me the wrong way. It's, it's really just an exploration of how like chaotic life can be and how challenging it is to put life's pieces all together like a puzzle. Um, so I, I mean, I say this is okay. It's not, a, not a great one. And, uh, you know, definitely not something you need to see in a theater. If you're going to check this one out, I would highly recommend you just wait until it hits streaming or Blu-ray. Another one is uh, the film Alpha. And this is about the boy and his dog or the boy and a wolf. Prehistoric one. I know most people have probably seen trailers for this. But, you know, the trailers make it look like it's going to be kind of like a Disney film. Uh, a nice, feel-good, incredible journey type story. And we were shocked, my kids and I, to sit down in our IMAX screening of this and realize that this thing is a completely subtitled. The entire film is in a prehistoric language, not a, not a lick of English. Now, it didn't bother me, and my kids were able to you know, take it in just fine. They've watched enough anime that they can do subtitles. But it made me realize there are going to be a lot of folks who, who take their children to see this movie, thinking that it's just this sweet movie about a boy and his wolf companion and how he becomes man's best friend. Uh, and they're going to be a little surprised, because that's not the kind of movie this is. It's got some violence to it. And I don't know, it's really just a hit or miss film for me. Visually, it's incredibly stunning. And I was 
actually glad that we got to see it in IMAX because there were quite a few shots that frankly could have been like a desktop screensaver. They were that just gorgeous. The landscapes that we saw and the, the space, the sky, but the story itself is kind of cliche and simplistic and really doesn't have much to it. And it, it devolves into very, very lucky and kind of unbelievable situations uh, from the moment the boy actually is tossed over this cliff <laughs> and, and survives it all the way to the end. And some things that happen with the alpha, the dog, uh, the wolf, and, and how it goes on to become man's best friend as a species just makes some kind of dumb choices in my opinion. So not a big fan. Uh, I'd say skip that one actually completely. I don't find it to have a lot of value. It's just okay. But I want, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds like a dog days of summer kind of movie there. I mean, you've seen what three movies centered around dogs this year so far. we have, I love dogs, which is phenomenal. Like best of the year type material. We have dog days, which was incredibly refreshing and, and surprisingly good. And then we had alpha. And then next week there's a movie about a robotic dog called Axel, which I'm not going to be seeing. So sorry. Go ahead. But, uh, you know, what I watched tonight, I do want to talk about because this has been on my mind ever since I turned off the movie. And I'm, I'm hoping to be able to clear it out uh, so that we can talk about Spirited Away without it creeping in. But um, one of our listeners, our contributors, actually, Jacob Neff, he's been doing a deep dive into Filmstruck stuff and, you know, trying to complete filmographies for his favorite directors. And I saw that he watched this movie uh, made by Denis Villeneuve one of his most early films, one of the only ones that's available that far back. And it's called Polytechnique. And I thought at first it might be a French film, but it's actually because it was set in Canada. What it is is a black and white film that covers this school shooting that happened at this Montreal school, Polytechnique, back in 1989. And the situation is a male who is feeling very wronged by women in the world, um, essentially wants to kill all of the women because he considers them all to be feminists. And so the way that Villeneuve tells this story, it's a 77-minute movie. It is tight. It is really, really tight. doesn't waste any space. And it's enrapturing from the very first moment. And it, I don't even know what the characters' names were, Patrick, because it doesn't matter. They're not real life people. Um, they are ciphers of a sort, uh, you know, protect the names of the, the innocents that actually were part of this tragedy. But the story follows the same beats and the same things that happened. Uh, and it's just really, really powerful. There's a moment in the middle of it where something happened that was so jarring and so upsetting to me that I almost threw up on the spot. I'm not kidding you. Like I felt a physical manifestation of sickness inside me. I paused the movie. And I walked around for about 10 minutes, calming myself down before I was able to continue it. It was that evocative emotionally or provocative. And so I highly recommend it. I mean, it was an undeniable five-star movie for me. I think that the craft that he shows in this film is just amazing. I mean, his directorial sense of what he wants to do with every framing of every shot, the score, the way that it's told it's it's perfect it really is so i think you would love it as far as like respecting it it's a hard watch i don't know if i would love it you know in the sense that 
you'll like it because of what the content is. But man, is it good. And it's something that I think we would be able to talk about at some point. Yeah. When you were talking to me about it offline, it got me really intrigued. And um, I know it's available for Amazon Prime users. It's on the Amazon video library. So I'll put it in my queue and I'm going to try to uh, add it to my list of movies that um, I've got watching this week while I'm out of town. Uh, that'll be like the sixth, I think, in the in the list. <laughs> and hopefully I can find a way to shift it around where it makes it more to the top because it sounds really good. Yeah, and it's not subtitled or anything. It's in English. It's not in French um, like in Cindy's was. That was in Arabic and French, one of his other early films. So okay. I was, that was nice because it was a lot easier to stay with for me, to be fully honest. Okay. Well, let's do our bracket recap, shall we? This huh? is uh, week three of Director Battle Month. And so far, the tally is I have 23 correct picks and you have 20 correct picks. So, Patrick, I didn't do very well in uh, week three's bracket. (laughs) I did not have my pulse on our membership group at all. (laughs) Okay, well, do you want me to start or do you want to? Um, Why don't you go ahead? Like, what did you, how'd you do in round one? Did you miss any? I missed one. Um, Wow. I, I had... I had a beautiful mind edging out Apollo 13. And um, I got to say, just in general, this might be a spoiler, <laughs> but <not> good. <laughs> Apollo 13 surprised, I think, you and me and probably Ron Howard himself. <laughs> like, what happened here? So that didn't uh, that didn't bode well for me. Of all the ones to miss in the first round, the, one, know, that right? goes, the one that goes all the way to the final, the final two. Um, yeah. Well, for me, I had them all correct except Zodiac. Uh, I picked Zodiac to beat out seven in the first round. And I thought I was pretty certain about that um, to the extent that Zodiac was my choice to win. it all. <laughs> <laughs> so you lost one of the top two contenders probably or whatever. I lost uh, my final four pick in the first round. I got them all right, except that one. But of all the ones to get wrong, that was the, the worst. Yeah. So, okay. so we're both missing one at the first round. Okay, let's go into the second round. I'll, I'll go. I got one out of four, Patrick. At this point, I was on life support already. My one though was Apollo thirteen. So, Ron, I, I had your back. I was with the group. Okay. Well, I got two out of four. <laughs> I'm, wow, you're crushing I, me. I, I of course missed. Uh, I missed a beautiful mind with you know Apollo thirteen, and then the the battle for. Spirited away in Totoro surprised me. I was I was hoping for for Totoro and Spirited Away uh, took the took the. Yeah, I was hoping for Totoro as well, and I was actually actively in the group campaigning for Totoro. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Like I was trying to get Totoro a win with all that I could. I, I really was wanting that one to go all the way. I had it in my final two for this bracket, of course, yeah. lost. So that was bad, and <laughs> yeah. So then that means I have missed four at this point and you have missed three yes i think so all right so you are up on me by a by one right now so in that kind of nothing you're shaking your head i'm I'm done after that i just done (laughs) so i'm done too okay Uh so we are in one (laughs) we are bad now there was an epic battle in the facebook group listeners that if you are not a part of that facebook group we wanted to tell you about it Spirited Away went down to the wire with, what was it, Patrick? Was it Apollo 13? 
Huh? Was that the closest? Was that the close one? Yeah. It was Where the, it was I, a, I was, yeah. And I was actively trial. campaigning. I think it was almost a tie. And it was literally almost a tie right up until midnight until the final vote was cast. I was posting like mad trying to get people to wake up and somebody to vote that hadn't voted yet. It just kept being tied. Somebody cast a vote at midnight and put it over the top for Spirited Away. Well, the polls, you can't close them on Facebook. They just stay there, open, able to be voted in. So people woke up, and by the time people woke up, Apollo 13 was up by like two or three votes. So I'm like posting saying, no, Spirited Away won, and everybody is calling it collusion and saying that, you know, it's rigged, and I completely like (laughs) threw the contest, and like I just picked Spirited Away. Well, no, I didn't. I'm telling you right now. Patrick actually wanted Apollo 13, so you can't blame this on us. This was what the people wanted. Okay. And the people got it. And the people get what the people want, and the people want to spirit away. So we're excited to talk about it. Um, before we do that, though, I do just want to mention next week's episode will be the final of film for our director battle month. This has been a really fun ex- uh, exercise, and I'm hoping we can do it again. And this one went down to the wire as well. This final was super duper duper close, and the Victor emerged out of that bracket was Martin Scorsese's film, The Departed. So that will be our last August episode coming at you next week. Tune in for that one. And also, we just want to encourage you to check out our friend Matt and his podcast, uh, Next Best Picture Podcast. They're starting to ramp up for awards season at this point, and they do that better than anybody else. Hear from Matt a little bit more about what he does. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the filmmaking industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. All right. Well, that being said, now we're entering into the imagination of Miyazaki and also spoiler country. So if you haven't visited this film, please go watch it and come back and join the conversation with us. Otherwise, you're not going to know what's going on and you're going to think we're talking gibberish because, well, you know, it's spirited away. Aaron, why don't you get us started with your one word takeaway? Sure. I would love to. Um, My one word takeaway for this viewing, my second, is imagination. I was really hoping that I would understand the story more during this viewing. I posted in the Facebook group earlier this week a thread and asked people what they wanted us to talk about. And one of our listeners, uh, Jacob, said, just please explain what the heck is going on in this movie. And I, and I laughed and I was like, well, you might need to find another podcast to do that. But no, rea- realistically, we're going to try to do that some. But the fact of the matter is that's how I felt after my first viewing. I didn't know what the heck was going on, Patrick. And I was hoping that I would glean more of that understanding this time around. Uh, 
I've always known that there must be something going on beneath this fantastical surface. And I think this time I definitely picked up on a few of those themes. But still, the visual beauty and the sheer creativity of this film is what I latch on to the most. Even when I had no idea why these spirits exist or why they have this bathhouse in the spirit world or who's the villain, who's the hero, some of that was very murky. I'm still always captivated by the gorgeous animation of this movie. And I think it holds up today incredibly well, like right alongside films that are being made in the anime world today. It's truly unlike anything I've ever seen before. This imagination of Miyazaki and the way that he has created this new fairy tale world. I also I have to acknowledge that because it is so inventive and unique, a lot of this is coming from a lack of cultural knowledge on my part when it comes to Japanese specific references. So it makes this film sometimes a lot more difficult for me to connect with as well as to understand. But regardless, I landed on imagination because his imagination is what makes his movies worth watching and worth putting in the effort to try and fully comprehend. Yeah. I came away with the word surprised and some of that was tied into the imaginative approach that Miyazaki takes with this world that he builds. But really it comes from the fact that, you know, this was the first movie that I was told to watch when it came to introducing me to anime and studio Ghibli or Ghibli or however you want to pronounce it. And Miyazaki specifically, I was told if you want to know what good anime is, this is the guy you want to watch. And this is the movie you want to start with. So didn't surprise me when I saw it the first time, but surprisingly there are a number of anime movies, uh, courtesy of my summer of anime and studio Ghibli and other studios and other directors that I've actually started to enjoy on a, a lot more and for different reasons. And it doesn't negate anything that Miyazaki is doing in spirited away. But I think that I was also surprised the second viewing with how much I enjoyed this more. I remember walking away from my first viewing and then walk watching um, the wind rises, which is actually my favorite Miyazaki film. And then watching Howl's moving castle, which is what I consider a nice blend of reality and fantasy. Also Christian Bale voices, one of the, one of the characters, which is kind of cool. Watching this a second time, I didn't have a lot of enthusiasm for it, but finishing it, I just found myself going, that was really good. And I know equally as much about the story as I did the first time. I'm not any more informed about what's going on. I'm kind of like you going, this is weird, but it's a fun weird and I'm enjoying the weird. And because there's a lot going on, there's a lot of layers of themes and ideas and symbolism that merits a good conversation. Now, hopefully we can do it somewhat of justice, but as Aaron mentioned before, if you can't find what you need here, there's probably another podcast that will dive deeper into the world of Spirited Away. We'll just give you what the feels are all about when it comes to that. But my word being surprised is on a multitude of levels in that I was surprised that I enjoyed it so much. And I was surprised at how visually imaginative, going back to your one word, 
that this world is. It's almost like these writers got into a room and they said, let's see, what can we, let's get a, let's get a bunch of pigs and then let's put hats on them. And then, Oh, let's let most of the creatures look like frogs. Oh, and then let's bring in another creature. That's a blob, but he's not really a blob. And I would love to be in that room where people are just spitballing ideas onto a whiteboard and seeing how those ideas come to, come to fruition. And I think what makes a movie like this so successful is that you can take all those weird ideas, those weird visuals and those weird characters, and you can create a really tender, a really exciting, a really fun story out of it. And that's not easy to do, especially when you're dealing with everything that Miyazaki is in a film like this. So I came away very surprised. Well, that's awesome. You know, I I think, what you just mentioned about the pigs and kind of the confusion of how this story handles its magical world leads into one of the questions that I had. And that was really surrounding this idea that maybe this is a classic based on a classic fairy tale model, but in a Japanese anime form. Mm -hmm. Some people have considered this to be similar to Alice in Wonderland and I wondered if you thought that, uh, first of all, I could definitely see how people think that with uh, Chihiro going on this journey of discovery. She learns a lot about herself. She kind of falls down a rabbit hole, so to speak. But to your point about the pigs, one thing that I was learning about this film when I did some research is it does intentionally incorporate many elements of you know classic Western literature and fairy tales and folklore people who magically turn into pigs is straight out of the odyssey um and homer's work Mm -hmm. there's the hero's quest which is what this story is based on Mm -hmm. that's the the plot line uh the prohibition against eating the food of of fairy folk is an irish folklore element yeah and then there's even the girl who goes to grandma's house so it's kind of got like a, a red riding hood thing to it as well so when I saw all of that listed out and I was like, oh, you know, I'm not smart enough to pick up on all of it and put it together, you know, and figure it out. But that does seem applicable. And so so did you notice any of that stuff or did you feel like it was kind of like Alice in Wonderland? Well, I didn't pick up on Alice in Wonderland specifically, but I did pick up on this idea of some Western ideas, Western culture. I actually remember... Orwell's Animal Farm that came to mind when I was thinking about this, and and I, again, I don't want to obsess about the pigs. The pigs are a small component of this story, but it's her parents, so we've got to say something about it. But thinking about talking animals and how they have more intelligence than what we come to expect from animals, or not just being funny, they actually have something to say. Not every creature in here was an animal. Uh, obviously each person, each main character seemed like a spirit of something of someone or, and I, I picked up more some of the political stuff and some of the ideals that were trying to be articulated. But when you mention Alice in Wonderland, I started thinking wizard of Oz. I started thinking about a world in which allegory exists, a world in which ideas can be articulated. That's accessible and somewhat entertaining and not very heavy handed. Although I feel like spirited away 
starts very subtle and then gets a little heavy handed and then leads back into that subtlety with some of its ideas. They're good ideas and they're definitely conversation starters, but I, I do see more allegory than anything else. And maybe Alice in Wonderland fits into that. Maybe mm-hmm. not, but I see in general, more allegorical stuff going on. Well, I thought a lot about how I find Alice in Wonderland incredibly understandable. Like I, I can, and maybe it's because I've seen it so many times and maybe it's because I recognize the characters so well, but for me, it's not as complicated to figure out as spirited away was, but I do see the similarities. And I think one of the roadblocks that I had is just the world is not fully explained. This is a magical world that just exists and we don't get to know what kind of spirit everything is. Like, why are there humans here? I, I still don't understand why people like Lynn and all of the, the women who scrub the grounds and wash the, the area. All the janitors are women, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> I did. Um, like, why are they human women? What, what is going on? Like, why are they there? And like, what is the little frog versus the big talking kind of anamorphic frog? And, none of that is really explained well. It it just kind of exists. We're just thrown into this and expected to, I don't think we're expected to totally get it. We're just expected to live in it. And that doesn't work a hundred percent for me. Well, it it didn't work a hundred percent for me the first time. And I've been very, very candid about how I don't care for fantasy that much. I'm more of a sci-fi. If you're going to don't lump sci-fi fantasy together because they're different. They're very different. So when you have a movie like Warcraft, that's not going to be a movie that I gravitate towards because it lives more in a fantasy world as opposed to something like Ex Machina, which is more sci-fi, cerebral sci-fi, but whatever. I look at Spirited Away this time. And one of the scenes that surprisingly I connected with, it was almost my connecting point, actually all the way up until probably like six hours ago when I was putting in my final notes is the actual transformation when Chiro is on the bridge and she sees the bathhouse actually operational. And then everything just starts coming alive. And so it feels like, Oh, this theme park that her parents are well, thinking it's a theme park, is actually a city or a village. Even that's not explained. We don't know what this is. We know it's there's a central bathhouse, and then there's storefronts. There's maybe a hotel. There's just a lot of buildings and a lot of scenery that we sort of translate what they are. And I think that's, like, I agree with you. I think it's intentional because of the fact that Miyazaki wants us to kind of live in this world of absurdity so that we can gravitate towards everything about it that's kind of weird. And I think he sets the table in that opening sequence where we start seeing that transformation. We start seeing spirits coming across that riverboat and landing and going across the bridge. And we're given a lot of information at once. And so by the time that whole sequence finishes, we don't have any more information than we had before. What we have is a feeling. What we have is a state of mind where we're going, okay, I'm in a weird world. I'm just going to take whatever it throws at me. At least that was the approach that I took. Um, Knowing what was coming ahead of time obviously helped for the second viewing. And I think Spirited Away is worth watching more than once, not only to catch certain things that you missed the first time, but also to 
get yourself more in the mindset of this is going to be a world of fantasy and everything about it is going to be breaking the rules of which we understand about what's normal because that's what we're meant to feel. Totally understand that and totally agree. I I definitely got it more this second time around like I was hoping to. So I would say this is one that you really should watch more than once. So if you are listening to this and you're on the fence, maybe kind of like Patrick and I were, you know, we, we would have watched this eventually, but we got it accelerated by the group choosing the movie for us to cover. Uh, but go, go seek it out and watch it again, because I do think that you will understand a lot more and maybe even more after this conversation. You know, one of the, the things that stuck out to me that I did latch onto big time was this idea of greed. It's all throughout this movie, like permeates it at its core. And it starts off right away with the way her parents acted. And I was just shocked, Patrick, because Chihiro is sitting here telling her parents not to do what they're doing. She's warning them. She's the child and she's being the parent. (laughs) She's saying, what are you doing? You're just sitting down at this random place, eating these random people's food. You have no idea who owns this. And her parents just start stuffing their face. They're like, oh, we'll, we'll pay for it. You know, I have money. I have gobs of money. I'll, I'll take care of it when they come back, right? When they come around. There's no sense of respecting someone else's food. There's no thought about what that could have been intended for uh, and where it came from or anything. It's just a greed and hunger. And, mm-hmm. and this is a, another continual theme throughout the movie where greed manifests itself as hunger. Uh, with no face, we see this just eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you picked up on this too, or if it was something that I was just kind of seeing. In the no, movie. no, I picked up on it okay. pretty, pretty early on. Not as much the first time, but the second time. I picked more up on the surprising approach that we have from this child versus adult maturity and how what you mentioned, the expectation is that the child would be the one, Chihiro would be the one indulging in this food and her parents would be more akin to being the cautious ones. They've lived life. They know what's up. But I think there's a subtle commentary about the innocence of her childhood, of her childness, if you will. But also I think it foreshadows the kind of quiet leadership that she articulates later on because part of what I enjoyed about this viewing was seeing her character arc going from timid to understanding to ultimately confident. There's a moment that I think is pretty fantastic where she has the, the piece of food that the river spirit gave her. Yeah. Medicine. It's the medicine and she gives half of it away Mm-hmm. And then she was going to save the other half for her parents, you know, to, cause she, that if I give this to my parents, they're going to turn back into humans when that's not really the case. What we find out is that if you have evil sludge in you, you throw it up and you get better. But she makes a comment. She says, I guess mom and dad, you're going to have to wait. And that's a key moment for her because her whole motive is to rescue her parents for the first half of the movie. And then there's that, tri- that that pivotal moment where she chooses to bypass them, not knowing that she'll be able to rescue them at some point. But now something else in this world has now become more important. 
Yes. I wrote those down as well. You know, it happens twice. It happens with Haku yes. when he's injured. And mm-hmm. it happens again with No Face where she specifically gives it to him even though everyone's calling him a monster and a villain. Right. Um, she has a faith about her that mm-hmm. this is someone who is hurting the spirit and she just wants to help the the person of the spirit that is hurting. Yeah. She doesn't really have a concept of long-term you know, problems that might come from that or, or what someone has done in the past. She's concerned with the way that the person of the spirit has treated her and evaluating that and then acting on it. And I, I do, I thought that was a very pivotal moment and also just incredibly sweet. Yeah. There's some, there's some real spiritual elements of, of discernment. I think if we were to take this into a, a theological route, there's definitely a, a spiritual gifting that might be hinted at of discernment and faith where you have a girl who without necessarily any explanation just knows that something is wrong. She knows that something is not quite right with her parents. There's something not quite right with, with no face and countless times we see her taking the opposite route of what the majority of people are engaging in. You know, no face is handing out all this money all this gold and everyone's trying to get this gold. And yet she's like, it's not like she's saying, I can't take it. She's saying, I have to go. I can't do this right now. Or I don't even think she says, I don't need it. I think she just, she finds another reason, another reason that's probably more noble to not engage in the, in the situation at all. Like her refusal of the gold is not because she doesn't want the gold. It's because she can't be there. She has something else she's got to do. And by putting what starts it as her being kind of that annoying child of saying, Hey, you're missing out on a sense of adventure. Your parents are trying to be adventurous and you're being annoying. You just, you're, you're being frustrating by wanting to sit in the car really retranslates into, ah, something else is going on here. And you're sensing that and you're trying to do what's best for the people around you and whoever you're connected with. Uh, It's very sincere and it, definitely rounds out her character in a way that um, I didn't pick up the first time. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's, she does, she also starts off greedy like everyone else because she wants to maintain the status quo. She wants to keep her parents' attention. She wants to stay where things are comfortable and she doesn't want to move. She wants to stay at her old, old place that where she, where they were living before and everybody continually exhibits this greed throughout the film um, you know, making them kind of oblivious to no face and his presence. Right. Even, um, even Haku, who is seemingly this force of goodness that is there to help Chihiro, you know, he wants something as well. He wants the power that Ubaba has. Like he wants to be equal to her. Um, he can't just accept his role. And so it's definitely all throughout it. And then food, as we've talked about now, is kind of a way that one of the ways the greed manifests itself. The the gold is another uh, big one. The food thing is interesting because, especially with No Face, I feel like there's probably some deeper, like, you know, commentary on consumerism going on here and how he just eats and eats and eats and eats. And it's essentially like his comfort, this food. In, instead of companionship, he just continues to eat. He doesn't need to make friends. He just 
consumes them and and puts them into him in a sense. Um, And then of course there's the food that heals. So I like the use of food throughout this. The only thing missing was Brad Pitt eating something that would have been like cherry on top. Right. I could have been voiced by Brad Pitt and maybe that would have worked. Oh man, that would have been absolutely perfect. (laughs) But yeah, there's, there's definitely a gluttony about the characters in this that is being addressed by Miyazaki. Yeah. And I think it ties into that sense of greed and really consumerism. I kept hearing Jenny Lynn singing never, you know, it's, it's, it's never enough. Never, never, never. And throughout this whole film, there's a sense of an overabundance of things, an overabundance of gold, the gold that never runs out. Uh, Even when, when she is, uh, when sin is cleaning, she's in that big bath and she's cleaning off the sludge monster or whatever we're calling him at this point. We, we get that sense of she's using the best, she's told there, we're told that she's using the best water and there's apprehension about that. So there's a sense of having enough, but not having enough and a sense of not wanting to use the best of things, but at the same time, having so much of something or another. And I think that food in particular articulates this in a way that we see that nobody is ever without food, but sometimes having too much is too much in that we go from being satisfied to being overly satiated. And for some people they need more, some people they need less But I think what Miyazaki does on a big scale with his storytelling is he shows that having a lot isn't necessarily a good thing, whether it's food or water or gold, those types of things. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's kind of how you use it as well. Um, You know, both both times when it comes to water and the gold, Chihiro is her usage of the water and her decision to do that is what ends up helping to save the sludge monster stink spirit and uh river spirit, whatever we want to call him. And uh, you know, when it comes to the gold, it ultimately disappears, rendering it pretty useless to all of those who were so completely obsessed with it that that's all they cared about. Even Yubaba who kind of lost her baby in the process of pursuing the gold first, mm-hmm. um, she loses the gold and, the only one that ends up richer in the story is Sin, Chihiro, and she's the one who couldn't care less about the gold and the money. So that's definitely an on-the-nose point being made there. Right. And the use of water in general is something that is not subtle <laughs> at all. Um, I think there's that big rain that happens in the tail end of the first act, and it becomes a sticking point for the rest of the movie. Um, it's, it covers up the land and over time, I I love that Miyazaki and his animated team do this where they slowly allow it to dissipate throughout the rest of the movie. It's not just static. It's not like, Oh, it rained and now everything's flooded. No, by the end of the movie, the rain or the water has actually dissipated, but we have a bathhouse that is the central focus of the movie. It's where the spirits come to wash themselves the sludge monster being one of them even no face comes in at one point to to take a bath and i wonder 
Where do you see significance of water in this movie beyond just the abundance of it and being a central figure, maybe even a supporting character in in a movie like this? Well, I mean, you're right. It's, it's all throughout. And I, I was pretty confused at first, the first viewing of this movie, because I didn't understand why there was a bathhouse and all of this. But then once you pick up on the water theme and the connection, you start to realize all of these things coming together. I mean, there's a river spirit that is being cleaned by the best water. As you mentioned, the sludge being pulled out of them. And then there's, there's Haku who is also a river spirit as well. Um, you know, sin nearly drowns in the process of using the water, but the river spirit stink spirit saves her by putting her in a bubble. So the water literally at the same time almost kills her and protects her, which is a really cool way to use it. Um, I think that for me, it's just beautiful first and foremost, because I really enjoy seeing animated water. I know this sounds very shallow pun intended, but honestly, I like this motif because of all of the ways you can show it. Yeah. Shinkai has a film it's on your animated challenge. I'm not sure if you got into it yet or not called garden of words. And it is almost entirely set in a rainy season. And the way that rain is shown in this film is just striking. It's gorgeous. I could watch it all day. I could just watch animated rain and water. And so I love it because it's all throughout this movie and it has a definite meaning to it. And I, and I think it probably also has some spiritual significance um, to the way that Miyazaki is representing the culture um, and the religions of Japan. I just don't fully grasp all of that, but it's got to because of the way that the spirits are water spirits and such. Yeah. I think there's maybe there's a connection geographically seeing as how Japan is entirely surrounded by water. So there's something about the connection maybe to that culture in a similar way that we have movies that might center around the South or the Midwest and the, the scenery is dry. There's there there are dry themes, scenes of, of 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 drought and 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 just desolation there. Um, but I think that we talk about a world of spirits and water being connected to life in a lot of I don't know if it's Eastern religions. I know for for our faith, there's a lot of connection to water and life. And maybe there's something connected between the spirits themselves being replenished through the bathhouse and being given that new life, even as a spirit. I don't know. I feel like they, they come in, they experience the world that Miyazaki's created, including the bathhouse, but we're never told that they go later on. I think this feels like a vacation spot for spirits to me. As I'm, that's exactly what it feels like, and that's what was so confusing. But but the bathhouse is the central focus, and so you have to think: here's a building, and here's its purpose. So how is Miyazaki making its importance in this? And to me, I, I feel like it's just a place of refreshment, not just a place of relaxation, but a place to find renewal for these guys. So maybe they have a. I don't know much about the spiritual world. I, I feel like there's a Japanese culture hidden in here that we just don't know about. I'm sure there is. That's what I'm saying. I think, I think it definitely exists. And it's pretty clear, uh, but without diving 
into a real deep analysis and trying to figure it out, we as Western viewers don't fully grasp that. Mm-hmm. And it's what keeps this film at a distance for me. So ultimately, I still enjoy it. And I enjoyed it equally to the first time I watched it, even though I picked up on more of the themes. But I, there is just a place I can't go past because I just don't feel like I'm connected to it in that same way, you know, where, and that's just not going to be the case for every single viewer. Like some people are going to resonate with this. You mentioned it earlier, not being into fantasy. Well, I have found something similar. Now there is definitely fantasy that I do love and adore and things like Lord of the Rings, which in reality is sort of similar. Like we have humans mixing with magical beings and, and different kinds of creations like orcs and, you know, giant eagles that are sentient. So it's not really all that different, but it, it feels more familiar to me. And so I'm able to connect to it and just, I don't know, man, there's something that holds me back here. And I've found a time and a time again, that even the ones that I enjoy from Miyazaki, these overly fantastical things like this and Howl's Moving Castle can't reach the heights that a more human-focused story like Kiki, even, or Princess Mononoke, uh, or you know My Neighbor Totoro can get to because they're a little lighter on the fantasy, mm-hmm. and these are so heavy that I can't do it. I can't so- get past it. So that's the thing is if, if I'm going to make a maybe a mid midpoint summer of anime opinion, it is that it's conf- I, it's been confirmed that I prefer more grounded stories and the, and the, the stories that I've been able to kind of consume over the last couple of months have sort of been a balance of both. And I gravitate more towards the ones that, have a human element to them that have a groundedness to them. Even, even Shinkai's sci-fi out there, the, the place promised in our early days, as much as I struggled with it, I connected more with it because we're dealing with human people and human issues. You know, it airs on the side of sci-fi, which is always one thing I want to, I, I like, but I just, there's, there is something about fantasy that just keeps me emotionally disconnected to an extent but when you have something like Spirited Away, there's also other themes that, that resonate with me. One being the blurred line between good and evil. That's one that I completely attached to and was almost enhanced by the fantasy for me. And I saw some really nice juxtaposition that existed with regards to this idea. I like that Miyazaki asks us to wrestle with it in regards to characters like Haku, No Face, and others where we have essentially a character that we think is one way, but turns out to be not the other, but both. So Haku starts out being a, Hey, this is going to be her guide. This is going to be the hero. But then we find out, wait a minute, he's also a thief, but then he has some redemption there. No face is another where he, she, it starts out as a innocent spirit that just makes a noise and then turns into something completely different as it gets into the bathhouse. And then again, has a really nice resolve uh, near the end of the film 
So we wrestle with that. We wrestle with, are they good or are they evil? Yes. The answer is, I think, both. Yeah, I really enjoyed that about this film as well. That was probably one of the two biggest themes that I enjoyed. And I like the fact that everybody kind of seems on a cursory glance a little bit, not evil, but, you know, unhelpful. Even Kamaji and Lin, when she first meet that meets them, they're kind of, they brush her aside. And ultimately they become critical uh, pieces in her escape and the way that Chihiro's story plays out. It's a much more accurate representation of the real world because of this. Absolutely. Because this is real life, right? This is how people are. People don't normally be, are not normally like, you know, serial killers or saints. Most of humanity is somewhere in the middle of those two things. And we make good choices some days and bad choices other days, you know. And, And I think No Face is a great example because he, he, she, it, as you said, starts off, you know, by doing a good thing. And bringing the bath tokens to sin. Like she helps sin. And I think that maybe the intention is greedy and maybe the intention is self-serving and that, that no face wants someone to help protect and kind of hide its presence in the bathhouse. But I'm not sure that it needed sin to do that at this point. It's already in, Right. So I feel like that was an actual act of goodness. But then, of course, it just starts eating everything (laughs) and devouring stuff. And so, you know, even the evil in the film, it's never quite like done away with. You know what I mean? Like it's dealt with and it's weakened or its influence is weakened, but it's never vanquished in a way that most Western stories would tell it right there's a it's there's somewhat of a messy ending in the fact that we have flawed characters and we love our flawed characters it's what makes movies a lot more enjoyable when things don't necessarily wrap up nicely with the bow i mean yes i guess chihiro's story did in that she escaped the fantasy world but you're right we have other characters um, in particular, I think it's, um, remind me of the, <laughs> I can't remember the, the, not grandmother's name, but her sister. Yubaba? Baba. She really never changes. I mean, she gives Chihiro that final test and Chihiro passes the test, but Yubaba really doesn't have much of a change, but it doesn't bother me because that's who she is. Uh, Haku he will, there's nothing telling me that he won't go out and steal again or do something that's going to be self-motivated. And I think that's what's really great about each one of these characters because they, in the world of fantasy, this is the most real thing that we have is these characters. And tying back into that idea of that juxtaposition, things aren't what they seem. And I think that's a building block for the entire narrative of the the film's plot. <laughs> we look at this fantasy world and it's just that it's different from the world that Chihiro knows. So I think Miyazaki plays with that on a multitude of levels, but more probably I think the strongest element is within these characters and having a sense of growth, but not resolution necessarily. And, and I like that. I did too. The other thing I liked is 
the very strong theme about the power of words and the power of a name, just like we always talk about on this show. It's one of our favorite things. Um, and it's in play right off the bat here. And I, and it, one of my favorite moments was when Haku was telling sin about the power of the name and what it meant for you, Baba to take hers. And I just was thinking about you the whole time I was watching the movie, just kind of smiling. Cause I knew you'd be liking that too. Well, surprisingly, this was something that I thought was really lacking. That was a wonderful scene. And when I initially watched this for the first time, I was like, oh man, I'm going to love this movie. But it never really got spoken of again. And it got picked up at the very end when she's riding on his back as that cool dragon. And she says, hey, I remember something. I remember this river that I stepped in and... I realized that's your, that's your name is the river, whatever. And then of course that wonderful animated sequence where the dragon fades away and Haku is sitting there flying with her. And he's like, yes, I remember my name now. Those two moments are fantastic, but I don't feel like there was much in between that really gave agency to that last moment. I felt like that was a kind of a missed opportunity. And it may have been because Miyazaki threw in a whole bunch of other stuff that we were wrestling with from a theme thematic point of view. I I think words more than names made more of an impact in the way in which you have um, Chihiro being directed at the very beginning. Make sure you just ask for a job and demand a job and make sure you talk to him Uh, the way in which she's not allowed to speak or not allowed. She has to, she can't, she has to hold her breath the way across the bridge. The, the use of words in general, um, no, no face, not having the ability to speak until he actually consumes that frog, the lack of words or the use of words, I think makes more of an impact than the names themselves. I do too. I mean, even Chihiro's use of words when it comes to pleasantries, she's, always saying yes ma'am this and yes ma'am that and you know showing her character um through the words that she uses and so it's very much a theme that's constantly being uh, applied in this film but i agree with you about the names i thought that there would there could be more done with it between those two brilliant scenes ultimately it's enough for me um i enjoy it quite a bit and i just I love the concept here of a villain that, you know, steals your name. And if you can't remember it, you'll forget who you are and you'll become kind of imprisoned without it. And that's what happens to Haku, of course. And he's saved because Sin not only remembers her own name, uh, but she remembers his and is able to free him. Right. I just, I do. I thought that there could be a little bit more to it as well. Uh, Well, I mean, I enjoy that it's there. Yeah, and if we'd seen her struggle more with remembering her name, I don't recall any scene where she's like, what was my name? I don't remember it. Like, she didn't have a crisis of forgetting that. And it made me think about Back to the Future when Marty McFly, he's trying to change the future and his his brother and sister keep disappearing from a picture. Like, I, I pictured that kind of situation happening where slowly – as she spends more time in this world, she would slowly forget her name, but she never did. I don't think she ever did actually. And she does one better and remembers Haku's name. So to me, I don't feel like there was enough of a struggle with that. Yeah. 
That's fair. Well, I don't have anything else if you don't. So let's uh, just drop into our connecting points. Do you want to start or you want me to? I would be happy to go first if you want me to. All right. Well, my connecting point is Sin helping to clean the stink spirit and the sledge monster. Um, I really, really enjoyed this sequence the first time I watched the film. It's the memory that I take away from it. It's the the one that scene that I don't forget, right? There's lots about this plot that, for me, kind of just meshed together in a world of fantasy, and I didn't recall until I started seeing it again. Actually, I take that back. The soot sprites, I love the soot sprites, Patrick. That's one of my favorite things in my neighbor Totoro is the soot sprites. And when I saw them return here, I was so excited. And so I'm glad that they're included in this. And I wish they got more fi- more screen time, but I digress. So the stink spirit, as it init- is initially called, he comes in covered in ooze and everyone stays as far away as possible, except Sin, who interacts, um, even to the point of wading through his sludge and his grossness herself. Fantastic animation here, which shows the sludge getting thicker and thicker and her literally almost becoming stuck in it. And she uses these tokens, the bathhouse's best herbal formula. And she's the only one willing to get close to him. And it's because of this, that she discovers this thorn in him, this thing that needs to be pulled out. And Ultimately, uh, she's able to show that, and Yubaba has a brief moment of almost redemption in this scene. I, I thought she was having a change of heart because she actually praises Sin for the way that she is serving this customer. And then she calls for the rest of the members to come and help to pull this out. And so they, they pull in this great tug-of-war scene where they're pulling the bicycle out, and then it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And ultimately, all the trash comes out. And we learn that this was a river spirit. And of course, he leaves her the gift that ultimately would save Haku and um, No-Face. And this moment really resonated with me because of her willingness to not turn away from someone who looks and smells differently, but to offer help in an equal way. She saw someone in need, and she acted on that. And I think that that's a lesson that we could all use refreshing on, frankly. But I also learned that this incident was based on Miyazaki's own experience as a volunteer at a river cleanup, where he actually pulled a bicycle out of a river himself. And I think because the film has so much of this water and river and cleanliness theme, uh, this environmental slant to it, that Miyazaki is probably trying to show us how a communal effort is needed in order to keep our waters clean and to not let them fill up with trash like a dumpster. So that's what I pulled out of the sludge monster. And uh, that's what I remember the most. You didn't literally pull that out of the sludge monster, just metaphorically speaking, right? Correct. (laughs) Great connecting point, man. To me, again, I mentioned the, the opening, the sequence where the transition happens again, that was going to be my connecting point. But then I recalled a, a sequence that resonated with me for a different reason. It's the train ride to Swamp Bottom that um, that we see later on in the movie. And there's nothing really noteworthy or significant about the sequence. Uh, for me, I think the reason I gravitated towards it so much is this sense of, I don't know, innocence, simplicity. I don't really know the word 
to put put on it. But it's the sounds of the train on the track over the water. You mentioned earlier about how you love watching animated rain. And I don't know if it has something to do with the visuals equally as much as the, the Foley of the rain hitting whatever it is. But I picked up on, on that with this, this sequence. Uh, and you have that mixed with that simple piano and violin score above it. Uh, which is interesting because one of the criticisms I have with some of the, the anime that I've watched is the use of music and how it feels weird in some places and how it doesn't feel like it meshes very well. This is perfect. And the whole score throughout Spirited Away feels very appropriate with each scene that is depicted. Um, but all that and watching Chihiro and No-Face sit quietly as the journey goes on and watching those people get on and off the train. For me, it seems like this nice pause in the chaos of what we've experienced over this last hour and a half. We've got so much going on, so many ideas, so much action, so much humor, uh, so much weirdness that there's a sense of normalcy. There's like this breath that we can take as an audience. And me in particular, I found that very refreshing because I'm not a fan of the fantasy genre very much. And it's that it's nice. It's nice to have that beat in the narrative. And I can't, show this because we're an audio podcast, but there are actually two really nice shots and I put them in the notes. So Aaron, see them. they but are gorgeous by the way. Good picks. They're great shots. Uh, and I can only describe them. One is a wide shot inside the train looking down, you know, in a narrow kind of vanishing point view with Chihiro and no face sitting to the right of the frame in their seats, staring ahead with the lights from the outside just whizzing by. And then the other one just comes right after, comes just after that. And it's a push right into Chihiro's face as she looks ahead. And her expression is one of seriousness and solemnness. To me, I feel like the, these moments, these two shots are a moment of maturity for the movie and particularly for Chihiro in that second shot because she's determined she wants to finish her mission. Like she is in a gentle way, this Ethan hunt of the movie at this point, because she's going someplace that she's never been with the spirit that she has experienced this crazy arc with to meet a woman to write a wrong. That's not hers to write. Like she's taking ownership of someone else's mistake in order to, help bring about justice for this world that she really doesn't have much ownership of to begin with. And I think that says so much about her character and how she cares that we don't get early on, but we learn about as the, as the film goes on. And, uh, and those two moments in particular, I think stand out for that breath that you can take as well as giving you nonverbal insight into her and the the journey that she's been on. Good stuff, man. Good pick. I like that you kind of went outside the box on that one. Um, it's, a, it's a nice moment in this movie, a nice, quiet moment. Yeah, very much, very much so. Well, Aaron, this has been good. Where can people find you if they want to keep the conversation going? Obviously, people love this movie, and hopefully the conversation will keep going. So where can people find you on social media? 
Well, they can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film Aaron or tweeting from the main show's address at Feelin' Film. Uh, but you can come talk about the show. A great place to do that is our Facebook group, as we mentioned all the time. Membership is open to anyone and everyone, and we would love to have you come be a part of that group and add your voice to the discussion and just talk about Spirited Away, talk about any movie that excites you or that you enjoy. You can talk about any kind of thing you want, and we would really encourage that. Well, you can find me on social media at Shoeless Patch. I'm uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Just uh, plug that in, and you will find me floating around there. As uh, Aaron mentioned earlier, we've got The Departed coming up next week to finish out our director battle month, and this will be a first-time watch for me, so I'm excited to to check that out this week and uh, engage in that conversation. So looking forward to that, and we hope you guys look forward to listening. That's all for us. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.